Hello and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Before I introduce today's guest, a quick announcement. One of the interesting things to come out of producing these episodes so far is that every single guest uses Twitter to keep up with the latest machine learning research and to follow the most important people in the field. And while I am generally hesitant to use any sort of social media, when a bunch of smart people I'll tell you to do the exact same thing, you should probably do it. So I'm going to follow my own advice on this one, and I have started a Twitter account. So you can follow me at charlieu, you spelled the normal way, charlieuai, and I'll be posting highlights from the podcast, so I record the video of both me and my guest, as well as posting things that I've learned on the job and things that I've learned from doing these interviews. So again, that is Charlie UAI. I hope to see you there. My guest today is a master's student at MIT studying machine learning for natural language processing. He's a researcher at the CS and AI lab and has published multiple papers, including a new preprint, on sampling algorithms for open-ended natural language generation. Please welcome Moin Nadim. Moin, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And the first question that I always ask our guests is, how were you first exposed to computer science and what made you decide to pursue it? Ooh, this is a great question. So I guess there's two definitions of two ways of the exposure. One is like an exposure to programming. And the second is an exposure to computer science in general. I would argue the exposure to computer science as a technical mathematical field. I actually didn't get until I started college, which is quite unfortunate. But the exposure to programming is a more, much more interesting and fun story. As a kid, I loved to read. I would spend a lot of time reading books and I would got grounded a couple of times for reading instead of listening to my parents, for instance. So at this point I was in, I think fourth grade and I was browsing around the library and I saw this book called Visual Basic Step-by-Step. And I remember six months prior, I was in my cousin's apartment in London, just visiting family. 
And I, as this little script kitty, I had seen this visual basic script that you can essentially copy and paste and it'll create this for loop of pop-ups. So it was like a child's play out of virus. And my cousin was actually an architecture major, but he was taking a visual basic class. So he was like, I can one up you and pulled up visual basic and wrote out the program without copying and pasting it, made it a bit more intricate, stuff like that. And I was like, wait, what? This is like, you have an if statement. What's that? And he's like, it's like a programming language. You learn it. And I was just mind boggled. Same thing. It's so like English, Spanish, but there's also like visual basic. What is this? So I didn't really know what I was doing, but I saw the visual basic book. I was like, I'm out of book street. This one sounds like a good one to do. So I brought it home and started going through it. My dad saw it on my shelf and he was like, what are you doing with this? This is a college kid's textbook. I'm like, eh, I don't know. Let's just see if whatever can happen. And then four hours later, I like wrote my first program, which was a poker game and called him. And Matt was like, okay, sounds good. Like kind of surprised, but whatever. So then I taught myself how to do Visual Basic, which is an extremely simple language. Thankfully, TI-84s ran a very similar variant of Basic. So I started programming on the TI-84. That led to web dev. That led to Java. That led to machine learning. Nice. And then... Wow, really early start. That's super interesting. When yeah. did machine learning start to come into the picture? Yeah, machine learning was an interesting one. I think something I had always, I think my love of programming came from a love of automation. There were mundane tasks I always wanted to do. And it'd be great if there was a better way to do this task automatically. And naturally, I think around the end of high school, I started noticing that my programs could only get so automated on their own. And in particular, there was one interesting motivating example. I went to, I'm from Oklahoma, and I went to a very interesting high school in Oklahoma where it was both a combination of very privileged people and a lot of people who are a lot less fortunate. And this dichotomy led to a lot of mental health issues. So for instance, we had one suicide every year when I was in high school. Yeah, it was, it was a very interesting time to grow up, I think. Definitely, it was quite traumatic. But for some of those kids, I remember me and my friends were at lunch in the cafeteria and we were browsing through their Twitter profiles. And something I noticed was like, their tweets weren't the same that like everyone else would tweet, right? Like one of my friends who passed away tweeted, I wonder which state has the most homeless people. So I started wondering, what if you could use Twitter to predict their mental health states, right? So I started off by doing this with a sentiment analysis API. I didn't even know machine learning existed at the time. That only got me so far. So then I started doing, and I read about like linear regression, but I didn't know SKLearn existed. This was also about 2015. So I pulled up Excel, got co-occurrence matrices by doing like the Python script, dumped that into Excel, and then did linear regression in Excel. And that was my original stab at machine learning. Then thankfully a professor decided to take me on and taught me about SKLearn and proper like clustering methods and stuff like that. And that's when I started, got an official start. Yeah, and that, that research actually turned into a paper. And it's funny because yeah. when I saw that on your Google Scholar, it looked familiar. And the reason was because back in 2016, I did a internship in natural language. And the topic was, it was topic modeling for, actually, I don't know if I can go into it because of the employer, but it was kind of a little bit similar to, to that paper. And I Saw that I went back into my notes and and saw that I actually had read your paper way back in 2016 on this topic, which was that's hilarious. Oh, whoa, nice. Yeah, yeah, and you did this work with a few other people, and of course the that that one teacher that you mentioned were those other people, or was the professor in the habit of uh, helping students with machine learning projects, or was this some exceptional case? 
Yeah, that was a very interesting story. So I guess there were two professors I worked with. One provided me my start over the summer, which was at the local university. So I'm fortunate to have an older sister and my older sister kind of encouraged me to apply to a summer research program at the local university. So I worked with him and I think he got me a start into thinking about computer science as a technical field rather than just a set of APIs that you clump together. And then what happened was, as I noticed, I was kind of getting lost in this Excel stuff. I emailed a professor at Hopkins who had a lot of work in this area. And then he kind of related because senior year of high school, he also took on a project that was too hard and didn't really have enough direction. Uh, so he was happy to answer some emails here and there. That was the extent of the work. Um, but I think just answering emails here and there was incredibly useful for me. So he was the one who got me off of Excel and into SK Learn and all these things. And I think at that point, I started getting excited because as a kid, I enjoyed math. But because I felt, I almost got this feeling that it wasn't going to be as useful to me because programming didn't, wasn't very mathematical at the time. And this started combining my interest in mathematics with an interest in designing software. So then I started getting pretty excited and pretty into this. And I started neglecting my other classes just to spend more time on this. Yeah, and then you went to... MIT for your undergrad, did you, right from the get-go, orient all your studies towards being able to do machine learning in the future? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess originally I was pretty bullish, and I think I am still pretty bullish on wanting to start a company. So that was my initial direction of what should I do and how should I spend my time. I did a lot of that freshman year then I realized that MIT is pretty hard and I should either leave school or commit to staying in school for the next three years. I decided it's probably the wiser decision to continue to stay in school for the next three years. So at that point, then I started considering more of paths to go down and I decided that machine learning, if I had to study something in school, I'd take machine learning as a way to go. So I started taking a couple of machine learning classes here and there, started learning a lot about it, did a couple of research projects here, all of which I'm very glad I did. They were very fun. And then also, at the same time, I realized that I have a love of building software from an early age that isn't going to go away. And so while I love machine learning, there's an equivalent set of questions and systems, such as how do you design something like MapReduce? How do you scale these things efficiently and neatly that I'm equally as interested in? And that took a bit of work to get to. I didn't realize that, I think, until about a year ago. But now that I have understood this, I think it feeds into a greater interest of a combination of machine learning and systems. Yeah, I think everyone is right about now starting to realize that you can't just treat machine learning like it's just some other part of your software stack. Machine learning has feedback loops. You have to monitor these things. You have to have continuous deployment. You have to version your data, everything like that. Uh, so I definitely agree that it's a burgeoning field and the reason why I started this podcast. But one of the side projects that I had seen on your website was if I recall correctly, tracking a ton of people at once on the MIT campus. Yeah. Can you talk about yeah, this? Yeah, this is a very fun project. It also led to my best friends and my current roommates. So this was a fun project. We, I guess to provide context, the project overall was, can we build a system that would provide anonymized tracking of a set of individuals over any large set of area, right? For instance, imagine contact tracing with COVID right now, you don't need to reveal who someone is until they actually can test positive. But when you do, you can say this is where their phone has been in the past, however long you've been tracking for. So the way this project started was there were two good friends of mine, but since it was freshman year, more like acquaintances. And we had all just discussed about a couple of ideas. And this idea settled of let's 
because of Wi-Fi probe requests, our, every phone will emit a Wi-Fi probe request as you walk by a beacon. We figured we could develop some sort of distributed system to do this at scale. And we were taking a class that was basically embedded systems. So we had to do things with microcontrollers, and we thought that was going to be a good fit. So we took a very cheap microcontroller, it was around like $2, and we essentially put that in a, like 10 of those throughout campus. And every time your phone passed one of those, we would get a ping saying, hey, this phone with this ID has passed by, and we could reconcile your ID across multiple locations. And this led to a large aggregate view of all of campus and who's walking around where. And because we put them at places that like are, would be considered bottlenecks, for instance, the main entrance into campus, the big cafeteria, uh, every single fork that you could possibly go down, we would put it roughly there right before the fork happens and right after the fork happens. We could essentially map who's walking where. There's a lot of interesting city level questions around this, right? Like for instance, campus gets too congested. What new corridor should you create in order to ease traffic? And there was a medium post with a lot of different graphs of this is at 5 p.m. This is the place you don't want to be if you don't want to interact with people. And this is the part, like these are the places that lunch will, that will have the longest lines for the given times. It was definitely one of those things that was slightly terrifying because almost, I remember w- looking down campus and being like, wow, we're kind of watching every single person around here. I don't know if this is okay with this. But then also made me think about, wow, if we're doing this on a pretty small, like in the grand scheme of things, there was one college campus. It was about 200,000 people over the course of two weeks. But then I thought about like people doing this with Google Maps and the aggregate view you get there. And then I thought about the aggregate views you get with Facebook and Twitter. And I was like, wow, that, just watching every single person knowing that like, I would know where they go. But now I'm reimagining this on this level of the world just yeah. absolutely blew my mind because it provided a new perspective of what these tech companies were actually up to. Yeah, and not just the strictly tech companies, but perhaps even more scary, Verizon, AT&T. Now we know yep. that they're tracking your cell phone at all times and they have that data. Yep. And then governments can file requests to get access to that data. So yeah, it's. I think the privacy, impl- it kind of opened my eye on the privacy implications of tech. Um, and I'm glad to have gotten that perspective so early on because i think i became more bullish on privacy and tech as time went on yeah but i'm also thankful for that project because it led me to my two best friends and current roommates mm-hmm. and then afterwards it seems like you shifted more of your focus in projects and research into strictly natural language processing was that intentional or did that happen by accident yeah that's a good question so i as far as i understood it now I think there's a bit more room for machine learning and systems, and I might have gone more down that route. But at the time, there were roughly three areas, computer vision, NLP, and reinforcement learning. RL didn't work as well then as it does now. Um, and NLP barely worked at all. Remember, this would be pre-BERT. Computer vision was working well, but my I think looking back to my projects, if I wanted a machine that could automate a lot of my tasks, I would have to discuss with it in natural language, and it would have to do some level of reasoning rather than computer vision seemed to be more of statistical pattern recognition. So I figured that I should go down this NLP route because I also figured that if you can aggregate a lot of text on the internet and provide summaries of it, that's an incredibly useful thing. And that's a lot of what I'm currently working on, which is, and I've seen that it's just incredibly useful. So I figured that would also reconcile with an interest in startups, for instance. Yeah, and something that, I've been thinking about recently in terms of an, a possible NLP startup is 
Zoom ha- is having all sorts of different integrations and apps with it. And something that I've been throwing around is potentially having a, a bot that would go into your Zoom meeting and it would transcribe everything that's going on. And at the end, yeah. you can send a summary to all the other people that were in this meeting. Yeah. Have you heard of Otter AI? Yeah, yeah. But that's just, that's strictly uh, just te- audio to transcript, isn't it? Yeah. So this was actually a good friend of mine and I spent like two, three weeks brainstorming around this idea. It's a really good one. And especially if you can go all the way to taking actionables and emailing out actionables to meeting participants, that would be incredible. I still am bullish on this idea just because I think there is a gap between what Otter AI does and what everyone needs. But I also don't know if, I think we're very, very close to the ability to get actionables and generate meeting transcripts as they go on. Meaning, because I think a lot of uncomfortable things people have with meeting, like online meeting notes is you just don't see the notes until the meeting finishes. But it's also very distracting to take meeting notes as you go on. So I think this is a very, very good startup. It's possible. It's something I think a lot of people are thinking about and someone's just going to end up building it. And if it's a startup that like, it's very clearly obvious and someone's going to end up building it, you might as well go and do it, right? (laughs) Yeah, maybe we can talk afterwards about next up so that... (laughs) (laughs) And something else that I guess your published your paper after the one that you did in high school was on end-to-end fact-checking systems. So this kind of brings together your interest in building systems in general, that machine learning part, some of that NLP as well. Can you, one, talk about, give an overview of that work and also your thoughts on if that could be a startup? Mm, this is a very good question. Yeah. So this work was motivated. I think this work took place around roughly like 2017, early 2018. I think it was early 2018. And the motivation was that the election had showed that disinformation is going to continue being a problem. We saw this happen on Twitter. We saw this happen in a lot of places. And if you think about it, maybe if you consider things like reputation and previous work into the process, you might be able to detect disinformation at scale. And if you can do that, that seems like a very big problem to solve. And it seems like a very good problem to solve, both from a ethical, are you doing something good from the world standpoint, as well as are you doing something valuable for the world in the first place? There's this implicit notion that not everything valuable for the world is necessarily something ethical. And so I thought that was a pretty reasonable problem to work on. I met this wonderful advisor whose lab I'm in now, and we continued down this route. The overall thought of the system was you can aggregate information from various sources, weigh those sources by how credible they are, and then see how much a certain claim, let's say Hillary Clinton won the election in 2016, agrees or disagrees with those sources. And the idea is if less credible sources agree with this claim and highly credible sources disagree with this claim, it's probably fake news. Inversely, if people who really say they know what they're talking about agree with it, and people who don't really have any credibility disagree with it, then it's probably not something worth talking about. So that was the system overview design and the way we're tracking it. In practice, you had to build, it required a lot of like engineering, a lot of good NLP work. Um, Because for instance, aggregating things from multiple sources, that requires nearly building a search engine in your own right. You can use Wikipedia, but you also have to download all of CNN. You have to download all of MSNBC, so on and so forth. Then you have to extract, find the most relevant articles for a given query, meaning you have to build, basically build Google search after building an inter, a web scraper. 
then you have to be able to aggregate documents and reason over them, which was a lot of NLP and BERT work because you have to say whether a document and a particular sentence agree or disagree, or let's say two particular sentences. So for instance, if you had a sentence that said Donald Trump won the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton won the 2016 election, you had to classify whether those would agree, disagree, or discuss each other, for instance. And then finally, you had to weigh these by their credibility. So you had to determine the credibility of a source in an automated manner. And then present those results in a nice software package. So that was a very fun project. I learned a lot about search algorithms, how search ranking works, stuff like that. It was definitely a ton of work. It took about, I think, eight months to build the entire pipeline end to end. But I think the overall work worked reasonably well. I think it was state-of-the-art in fact-checking for a while. But while I was doing this, I also felt this belief that this may not be the best way to go about it. Because ultimately, if you weigh credibility by who's speaking, uh, you're essentially just preserving the status quo, right? You're saying that these people have a lot of credibility. Let's just reinforce what they say. And these people don't really know what they're talking about. So let's never give them any credibility. And while that was going on, concurrent work was happening that would instead formulate social networks as graphs and look at the rates in which news travels through these graphs. And to me, that felt like something that would take human nature into account a lot more than credibility. And as a result, you don't have these feedback loops that people curse machine learning for nowadays. So gradually, I think after that, I eased away from that project. I realized it was a fun thing to build. I strongly considered bringing it into a startup at some point, but I had these concerns around the viability of the tech. The tech was still a bit more in the research phase rather than the deployment phase. And I had a concern around the feedback loops that it would create and the long-term impacts of those feedback loops. So I stepped a bit away from that, but I think the things I learned around search, for instance, are things I still use today. And that was an incredibly fun project to do. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm glad that you did consider it at that point about yeah. how, yeah, those feedback loops exist and maintaining the status quo isn't necessarily the best thing. I mean, we've seen, uh, I don't want to get political, but we've seen how, co how that information has spread during COVID times. I guess, how would you imagine that if you don't have a quote unquote ground truth, how would you imagine that the fact-checking system of the future would work, taking into account possibly those social network graphs? Yeah, so that's a better way to look at it. And the, I think the best way to do it is take your graph and do, it's almost like a related rates problem from physics. So you have water coming in from one tank at five milliseconds, another coming in at 10. So you can recast this almost as an anomaly detection problem where here's the common set of things. And you, you're, I guess you could almost use ground truth as like the normal set of articles that are shared. So this would be different than, for instance, the most common set of articles that are shared, but you could say, you know what, no matter what, we believe New York Times, CNN, and then aggregate this also with a couple of WordPress sources. And then say, these, this is what the path of these normally looks like. So normally we see that if you view this as like a graph, the diameter of this subgraph is a certain length. The velocity of this is a certain length. This goes through this many connected components. And then finally, this is being shared by a few independent, as in the seeds of the paths are rather disparate and unique rather than centralized. And if you view it from this, then it becomes, oh, this doesn't fall into the path that typical articles follow. So send it over to a human annotator and see if they can cl clarify that path. 
wow, that's fascinating. I never would have thought to formulate in that way. That's super cool. Yeah, after a year, I realized that this is the way to go. So it took a lot of work to get there. <laughs> yeah, although it is pretty much impossible to do that as a startup because of the access that you would need to to all those data paths. I thought about that, and a friend and I actually built out a lot of Twitter ingestion systems. Maybe there's legal obstacles you'd have because you essentially have to download all of Twitter. But Twitter is roughly, I think, 140 gigabytes a day from my back-of-the-envelope calculation back then which sounds like a lot, but it's not too bad for a startup scale. So you could do this, but the bigger question becomes, I think you're just going to have to write a lot of bots to scrape Twitter. And that might yield you in a cat and mouse game between you and Twitter. But it is doable. The cost of the, wouldn't be any extraordinary cost. I think running the servers is roughly the cost of one engineer, for instance, which isn't that bad. It is doable, but the bigger question I think is one of legal and social. Well, hopefully now that, especially now that graph algorithms or or rather graph neural networks are sufficiently more advanced now, maybe someone has, uh, someone at Twitter or Facebook is listening to this and can start <laughs> to make this happen. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. And then after this work, you focused specifically on that stance prediction machine learning part with Bert and trying to, essentially the task is given a a certain statement and you have a what existing corpus of knowledge exactly and then is this a factual statement or was it more nuanced than that was there some other differentiation yeah so the differentiation was just do these two statements agree disagree or discuss each other okay discuss implies some level of neutrality let's say this sky is blue for one statement and the other statement the sky is blue because of these certain chemicals that make it blue so a relatively neutral way to go about things. That work was essentially trying to take one of the systems that we subsystems that we built and try and refine the progress because ultimately search is relatively solved. It's not like it requires a lot of novel research around that. It's mostly productionizing things. And then similarly, web scraping is mostly an engineering task. So at the end, when we built this entire system, we realized that the part of this that's really bad is this reasoning amongst articles. And one good example would be that, let's say I took this claim, um, Hillary Clinton won the election in 2016, right? I would get a certain score for agree, disagree, or discuss. And let's say we just look at agree or disagree for sake of simplicity. Um, So let's say we have 33% agree, 66% disagree. Then if I change the claim to Hillary Clinton did not win the election, ideally, these should just flip around, right? Now we should have 66% agree, 33% disagree. In practice, that wasn't what happened. And the reason is that the BERT model essentially is very bad at understanding negations of a sentence. And we needed to augment the training process with some sort of inserting a knot and flipping the logits. So this paper captured the detailed stuff that you just BERT wouldn't do on its own and how we could try and improve that stance detection process. Do you think that, well, uh, at least in the cursory research that I've done in stance prediction, it seems like the research that was done before this was a lot of like feature specific things. Do you think that with the rise of BERT models and now GPT-3 pre-training the success that it's had, that feature engineering NLP is basically dead? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've read this. There's this very interesting paper by crap. Trying to think of who wrote it. It's not Richard Hamming. It's 
Sutton? Let me, yeah, Sutton. Do you know, do you remember guy. the name? Yeah. Let me pull it again. Oh, it's a curse of the bitter lesson. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. The bitter lesson. That's exactly it. Yeah. So Sutton has this great argument on the bitter lesson, which essentially says that any methods you develop should scale with compute because compute, the scale of compute continues to provide results. And it's looking at the past 20 years, it's pretty bad to say that these aren't going away anytime soon. So as a result, it, I started believing that hand-tuned objective functions, for instance, or a lot of hand-tuned architecture seems to be not a great way to go. You should leverage something that can just learn from data. And I almost believe now in more of data programming, which is instead of trying to modify the objective function or something like that, you should rather just augment your training data with, let's say, knots and the reverse logits. This isn't a satisfying answer because it's kind of boring, right? Instead of sitting there and thinking about what your model is doing, you literally just retrain with a set of extra data. But ultimately, I do think it's an answer that might just be more true. The where, place that we need to work on with the objective functions that models are trained on is more so understanding how what part of linguistics they aren't capturing. So for instance, syntax parse trees and understanding how they could be more data efficient. For instance, using, instead of learning on a sentence at a time, can you learn at a word at a time as an example? And hopefully from that, you can drive some extra efficiency. Where do you think, or how do you think that knowledge graphs could potentially play a role in addition to these language models, because they they sometimes appear to have logic behind them, where but when you give it nonsensical statements or ask it nonsensical questions, specifically with GPT three, it gives you nonsensical answers instead of just saying that doesn't make any sense. So, do you and every time I try and think about this, it just seems like such an impossible task so how would we possibly reframe that in terms of keeping into account the bitter lesson of always wanting to make your compute or make your models friendly with more compute yeah this is a great question Uh, my advisor had the same question so i'm working on this right now so this aligns really well ultimately if you think about it the model there's a couple of problems that cause this one is that natural language generation isn't a well-defined task and this is what my later paper tried to work on was right now the process of natural language generation introduces this process of sampling, which is this random process that tries to make language more diverse. But in this process, it's very easy to reduce factuality because you want to try and get something, because factual statements are more likely, but you want to try and sample from the less likely logits to make a sentence more interesting or more diverse. To see this, consider the fact that, let's say I have a chatbot, and the chatbot's going to reply to someone. You have two sample replies, right? One is, that's it, or that's re- cool, let's say. And the second reply would be, oh, that's really awesome. Tell me more. The second, awesome, the second reply is something that kind of excites someone, makes them excited to say more. But that's cool is something that is going to appear a lot more in the training data. So this is going to be more likely, and the model's going to be more likely to say it. So there's this almost fundamental trade-off between a good response and an interesting response. And similarly, this trade-off lends itself to models that make things up. 
So a really interesting way to go about it is to, instead of just, instead of generating a response by only what the model has been trained on, use the model not as something that knows anything about the world, but as something can, that can only generate coherent language and coherent syntax. But don't use it for factuality. Augment this with a knowledge graph that, for instance, can retrieve stuff between multiple documents. And this will also scale past attention, right? So right now, for the viewers who may not know, attention is roughly n squared, or nowadays, O of n. But since models, since GPUs have a memory size of about 16 gigabytes, it's not like you can take all of Wikipedia and reason over that at the same time. So instead, define a knowledge graph and have this knowledge graph be able to retrieve from multiple documents and then augment your response from these multiple documents. Interesting. Yeah, that makes significantly more sense. Yeah, you because you wouldn't want to attend over just the raw text of of what your whatever your pre-training corpus is. How and hopefully this can also make pre-training more efficient because now it doesn't have to capture factuality. Yeah, and then you'd also be back propagating the I guess what would be the word for that? Like a knowledge embedding, I guess? Yeah, exactly. So you'd be back propagating through, I guess, the general model and also a retriever model that's structured as a knowledge graph. So the question would almost be, you have these nodes that are, let's say, paragraphs in Wikipedia. Given a question, like who won the election in 2016, retrieve the set of nodes that are more like, most likely to answer, but also be able to retrieve sentences between two nodes. So for instance, one said the 2016 election, and it says Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump won the 2016 election. And, but the question is more nuanced. Let's say like, where is the winner of the 2016 election from? But now you have an edge between Donald Trump in that election article and Donald Trump's own Wikipedia article. And then you have that edge, you have that note in that article saying Donald Trump is from, I forget where he's from. So this will let you also attend to multiple documents in a way that attention can't. Yep. And more recent graph research has also shown that that masking pre-training works on those as well. So you can probably incorporate that massive pre-training process that uh, GP3 was able to take advantage of, or I, I guess all language models, although it's kind of hard to figure out the formulation for that. Yeah, that's a good question. Huh, I actually haven't thought about that. Yeah, if you could also send me that paper, I don't think I've seen that paper from the recent Graph Neural Networks one. Yeah, I'll make a note of that. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, someone who I had interviewed on the last one, who the podcast wasn't released yet, but Peiyuan Liao, he's doing work at Carnegie Mellon on graph networks, graph neural networks specifically on the security front, which is mm. where you can get the graph attributes from only knowing the embeddings of its neighbors. And so if you kind of like extrapolate that out to just predicting that directly that's kind of like the 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 high level idea i guess that makes sense to me okay that's pretty cool yeah i like that a lot actually so what do you okay. think that this is all going in terms of the future of natural language it seems or i guess if we zoom out even more than that I'm guessing you've seen the paper on using visual transformers that recently was achieving high, like the best results in terms of the accuracy to the compute that was used. 
are we slowly converging to the fact that attention really is all you need? Oh boy, yeah. So I really want to read this paper. I haven't had the chance to read it yet, but I did make this argument a couple of weeks ago with a friend. And the argument was, is a CNN a reasonable thing? Should we get rid of CNNs and just learn the operator instead? I was on the argument of yes. Another friend was on the argument of yes, but the last one was on the argument of no. This is why I think ultimately human encoded, given unlimited compute, these human encoded almost features or an operator always has some sort of intrinsic preference for something over another. So for instance, a CNN has been shown to prefer certain types of texture and certain types of shapes that aren't possible otherwise. And it does seem optimal to me that if you have the ability to do this at a large scale, attention will, will work better. The concern I have is that attention doesn't scale. The bottleneck on a memory limit is pretty high. But at the same time, if you pay attention to advances in modeling or advances in, I guess, hardware, people are really building up memory limits. The 3090 has 24 gigabytes as a standardized size. I don't know if you've heard about Cerebrus' CS1. No, I haven't. But they're, oh, Cerebrus is an incredible company. Okay, yeah. So basically what they're doing is, do you know like L1 versus L3 caches? Yeah. Yeah. So on an, I believe, and don't quote me on the very specifics, I guess I know more about the high level idea, but on an NVIDIA chip, I believe the 16 gigabytes of memory that you have is on the L3 cache, meaning that this is external to the CPU. And as a result, this requires, I think about two orders of magnitude higher to retrieve than a L1 cache does. So what Cerebrus is trying to do is most chips, they're pretty small. And you just try and scale up on the number of chips rather than scale the size of the chip. What Cerberus is trying to do is let's just build one chip that's massive. And because it's massive, your L1 cache will also be massive. So this chip is literally the size of a piece of paper. What? Yeah, it's mind boggling. Wait, what is the reason that we normally or that NVIDIA hasn't done this? Is it to do with like manufacturing processes because obviously the lar- it's like exponentially harder to manufacture by service area yeah so it's a combination of things i don't have a great understanding but as far as i understand one part is you what happens so in most of these processes the way they work is you develop the chip and if certain transistors in the chip fails that chip is just a lower gigahertz and you sell it at a different price so it's not like you throw away the entire chip with the CS1, well, the problem is that I believe these failures increase quadratically as you increase the surface area of the chip. So a significant question is, how do you still operate this chip when half of your transistors fail, or when a certain number of your transistors fail at that scale? And the second one is power dissipation. I don't know if you've, have you built a computer before? Yeah. Yeah, so you know like the size of your heat sink versus the size of your CPU. Yeah, yeah. But now when your CPU is the size of a piece of paper, how do you even do power dissipation there? And they've had some really interesting questions around doing power dissipation with water cooling or laying the, C, laying the actual chip in the Z axis rather than the X, Y axis. And now you can just put air through it vertically. So they've had some really interesting questions. I think they've recently came out of stealth mode, so I spent a while just reading about them. And if they succeed, then I think they're going to change machine learning research in a way that's non-trivial. Because every single nowadays, the bottleneck is RAM. And it's not even your forward pass. It's the time that you take to load your data set into RAM. 
So if they're using the L1 cache instead of the L3 cache, they're about two orders of magnitude faster than everyone, regardless of what their actual chip looks like. And this is incredible because now you can imagine training BERT in, let's say, three days or in one yeah, day instead of 30 faster. days. Yeah, Exactly. So I think there's slowly scaling up. It's a startup that recently came out of stealth mode, but I'm pretty bullish on what they could achieve and how this could change machine learning research, especially once you consider that we're losing these hand-encoded priors and we're all shifting all of that into compute. Wow, that's fascinating. Do you know how big they've gotten the L1 cache to be so far? Let me do a quick Google. I want to say it's on the order of at least... Oh yeah, they have 1.2 trillion transistors. And their L1 cache is 18 gigabytes. Wow. Whereas the L1 cache on NVIDIA is on the order of megabytes. Yeah, yeah. Wow. What's the order of magnitude of cost of this? That I have no clue. I don't think they've released pricing numbers publicly. So I would imagine it's not a cheap chip. Yeah, probably... Oh man, what what do you think your what's your back of the napkin math or I guess on at this? least a million? It's gotta be at least a million. Yeah. Probably. They're the only ones yeah. Like they're the only ones that have this. I guess their competitor is Graphcore, which yeah. is in the UK. And Graphcore has a similar approach, but I think their approach is a little more RAM limited as compared to them. I think they're working more on accelerating the actual forward pass. Mm-hmm. So and then once you have the ability to train these so much faster, what would you like? What would you do after that? Just add way more data? Uh, just have ten x larger data sets? Yeah, so that's a really good question. In NLP, I believe, as far as I currently understand, we only have roughly two to three orders of magnitude of data left. Like GPT three already uses a substantial amount of the internet. There's not too much data left. So, but at the same time, I think the scaling laws paper from OpenAI showed that for every order of magnitude, you increase your data, you need to increase your compute by two or three orders of magnitude. And even GPT-3 was only trained for half of an epoch on the entirety of the internet, meaning it's significantly underfitted. So I guess the first thing you would do is just try and train for longer with the same data. Or you can also, I think GPT-3 didn't even, I think that they're still using the O of N squared transformer. So now reduce your transformer to O of N in sequence length, and then you get something that's a lot more memory efficient. This also introduces a lot of interesting questions around inference. Because as far as I understand, running generation or inference with GPT-3 is a non-trivial task. And if you can reduce this to one machine at a time, it's just a lot easier and you don't have to deal with distributed computing. So can you explain that the going from O of N, o of N squared to O of N just like a little bit more slowly so I can understand that. I don't uh, quite understand that part, I think. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So currently the way attention works is let's say you have two sentences and let's say both of these sentences are of length eight. To provide a concrete example, let's say I went to, let's say it's a machine translation example where you're trying to translate between Spanish and English. So on imagine a matrix, on one side of the matrix, your columns are going to be, I went to the store in Spanish. So let's say like, vamos, I forgot what store is. Let's say like, Cina, just eat. I went to go eat. Tienda. Yeah, vamos a la en tienda. And then on the X axis, you have, I went to the store. And then the, essentially the values are how much each thing attends to the other. So for instance, at the cell where you have store, comma, and tienda, that should be high because both of them refer to store. 
versus store and vamos should not be that high because store and the word go in Spanish do not have any relation. Yeah, and then it's n squared to the sequence length. Exactly. So this matrix is n squared. Okay. There's a couple of ways to get around it. The easiest one to think about is instead of doing a matrix formulation, you hash into buckets. So you have a set of buckets and you just essentially try and hash, let's say, store into a particular bucket, and ideally store and at the end of hash to the same bucket, oh. and same with vamos and go. Interesting. Yeah, wow. Yeah, because presumably a large portion of the sentences are not actually, or presumably that that attention matrix is relatively sparse. So then once you so have this... that sort of intense speed up, do you just keep on scaling your... Because then you can effectively scale your sequence line to pretty ridiculous numbers, right? Yeah. I think the number that they had was... what's. Let me get the exact number. Yeah, so it's 2 to the 14th, or it's about 16,000 tokens. That's pretty large. So soon we can hopefully be able to attend to a document at a time. And I think DeepMind recently released this corpus of, well, we've been able to do question answering over a paragraph. Now let's try and do question answering over an entire document at a time. At the same time, I still believe that this won't scale to, I'm like, someone needs to independently pursue this work. Because the moment you can scale to a document, then other works can now think about a document as a node, for instance, if you use a knowledge graph. Um, but this will never be able to attend to all of Wikipedia at the same time. And that's why I prefer to work on a knowledge graph reasoning component. But it's great that someone's doing that because currently the nodes are paragraphs. The moment you can attend to an entire document at the time, you can make a node a document. And your entire graph also becomes a lot more dense. Dense graphs are better because they're more memory efficient. They require less nodes and less vertices. Yeah, and it's just more information per whatever part of that network is it's being intended to. Here's a startup idea. If we can attend over full documents at a time or do QA over full documents at a time, lawyers spend countless, countless hours going over hundreds, thousands of documents that are each hundreds, thousands of pages long. How much, how valuable would it be to be able to have a, for one case, just mass amounts of these of these documents, put it into one system. Oh, you've sent me a link on this. <laughs> I'm guessing yeah. it means that this is uh, not a new idea. <laughs> so this is actually contract review. It's different than QA over multiple documents. Uh-huh. This is actually a friend of mine's startup. I think it's roughly three years old now. There was, they're attacking a different angle, which is you get a ton of NDAs or you get a ton of contracts that come in every day. And what you want to see is like, really the question you're asking is what part of this contracts are standard? And what part is something that I actually need to worry about? So what they say is just throw it into our system. We'll show you the parts that like are standard and provide and explain like it's five or a human definition of what this part means. And we'll highlight the parts that don't really make sense. And you can send those parts to your lawyer. And your, since your lawyer pay, you pay your lawyer hourly, you'll save a lot of money because your lawyer will save a lot of time. It makes a lot of sense. I think they're doing reasonably well, but they're not doing question answering over a large scale of documents. And I think that one is still a very valid startup idea. Yeah. All right. Cool. I'll keep that so, one in my back pocket. <laughs> sounds good. So let's talk about natural language generation, because this is uh, the subject of your most recent paper. Can you explain yeah. in plain English what, how these language models produce the text that we see? Yeah, that's a good question. So 
the first part is that this language model has been defined to have a set of words that it will choose from. So for instance, let's say I, he, she, they, so on and so forth. And now what happens is when they learn the language, they're essentially just learning the probability over the next word given the previous words. So for instance, let's say given my name, you expect the next word to be is. Or given my name is, you expect the next word to be the most common word, the most common name in your training corpus. Once you understand this, there's also fun implications of bias because you're, the most common name it just depends on which training corpus you have. So the question then becomes, okay, I want a model that's going to generate really interesting, uh, really interesting responses, right? Then you need a model that's probably not going to actually maximize likelihood. Because like I said earlier, the more likely responses are probably responses that are boring. That's cool. It just appears a lot more in text. Then that's really awesome. Tell me more. So what people do instead is they say, okay, instead of taking the most likely response, I'm going to take the most likely 100 responses and choose one of those randomly. But now what happens is imagine one of those responses was bad. So you may get, that's really awesome. Carrots me more doesn't make sense. The human's going to look at this and be like, I'm really confused. What's the model doing? So everyone's come up with their own ways of choosing a good word from the set of words. And what I wanted to do was I had two intuitions. One is that choosing a good word early on is much more important than choosing a good word later because of the fact that we generate this one word at a time. So imagine we did this, right? That's carrots. Awesome right? After that, generating the next word is really confusing because you don't really know what the model's saying versus that's really awesome. Tell me carrots. It's still not as bad of a response as that's carrots. Awesome. Rabbits eats, eats food. So I looked at that and I was realizing that first of all, it's really bad to make a bad decision early on, but I was also realizing that all these current algorithms roughly seem to be doing the same thing. But when these papers came out, each one of them was like, we do natural language generation the best, use this method. It's really the better than one out of everything. So my question initially was, can I design an algorithm that generates better language? As I was looking through the algorithms, I started wondering what properties of an algorithm are useful in the first place. And that led to comparing the algorithms, running paying humans to read the sentences that are generated and mark how good they are. And that led to an understanding that all of these algorithms are roughly doing the same thing. Maybe one is like marginally better than the other, but in the big scheme of things, that's marginal. And if you run a hyperparameter sweep, you would be able to do, they're all after a hyperparameter sweep, roughly do the same thing. So then the question I had was, what properties are desirable in a good algorithm? And what I realized was things like reducing entropy are great. The model does have a good sort over the probabilities. For instance, the... Top 10 probabilities are better than the top, than let's say the last 10 in the top 100, as in 90 through 100. And then I also realized that removing elements from the middle doesn't matter. So, and this was a surprising claim. So for instance, let's say I took the top 100 words and I generated sentences using those. And then I took the top 100 words and got rid of every other word. And then I generated sentences using this one that just drops half of the words randomly. I didn't expect that generation to be just as good as the one that used the top 100 words. Yeah, that seems extremely non-intuitive. <laughs> yeah. And that was a surprising result that 
the sort matters in a bigger sense, but the specific words sometimes don't matter a ton. So this was almost like an empirical study of what properties are good for sampling algorithm and how can we develop better sampling algorithms for better language generation. Ultimately, I almost have this perspective now that there's this new trend that Jan LeCun is championing called energy-based modeling, which is rather than reducing the likelihood at a word level, for instance, let's try and reduce the likelihood at a sentence level. So if you consider this, this sentence, that's cool, would try and be minimized as much as that's really awesome, tell me more. And that seems like a bigger picture way just to reduce this fundamental problem rather than try and modify these sampling algorithms. But I still think that it's important that other people develop these sampling algorithms because it's probably going to be a while before we get better energy-based models. Yeah, it, it strikes me that it's similar to... So like right now, the way we do the, sample, the sampling is you generate one token and like based on the previous ones, the next token, next token, whatever. That's very similar to how we originally did the input of, of data for natural language where we used an LSTM, one, one directional, you read it, start to end. Whereas now, of course, we are tending over the entire sequence. What are the barriers to being able to generate language as entire sequences at a time and not sequentially, if, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's people working on this. I haven't familiarized myself with this direction of work, although I think it's very, very interesting. I think ultimately what you'd have to do is, let me take a second and think about this. Yeah, what you'd probably have to do is parallelize over a couple of different completions and be able to say, oh, I expected this completion to happen, so this is the one that would probably happen after that. But I think for the near future, we're probably going to still be stuck in this regime of one token at a time. Yeah, and it it doesn't seem... Well, I'll take that back. I was originally going to say it doesn't seem that bad to the current way that we do it, but we also didn't think that LSTMs were that bad, and obviously we've seen where that's gotten us now. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Yeah, so it's hard to really see the big picture when you're like caught in the weeds and it's hard to almost look forward and know that these are the problems. Instead, I guess I've tried to look at the trends and the trend overall is that rather than reducing the attention, for instance, LSTMs were good and there's a lot of research that shows that these LCMs might actually be better linguistically, meaning that they capture hierarchy in a better sense. But ultimately, attention was paralyzable in a way that just leveraged a lot of compute. Oh, and this true. is what LCMs yeah. lacked. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So a better, there's two better questions around generation that I really like. One is that syntactically, these subwords that we use currently so in the earlier examples, I provide a simplified manner where we use a word like he or they. But if you consider words like running, ideally the vector for running should be similar to the vector for run. So instead we break these up into subwords and we have run followed by ing. But sometimes these subwords, these subwords are created almost like a greedy dynamic programming formulation. And sometimes these break things at linguistic places that are terrible. So instead, I think a way of research that's incredibly undervalued right now is can we build a better word-level encoding? 
that provides linguistic generalization in a way that previous encodings haven't. And I think there's a paper that describes some of this. Fascinating. That does, I've never thought about that before, about the specifics of the subwords. And I don't even know yeah. how to think about formulating a better solution to that. <laughs> yeah, it's a very different way to think about things. But for instance, what this word, what this paper showed is, let's say the word tricycles, right? What intuitively we would say is tricycles, three, tri, cycle, meaning the wheel, and then S meaning it's plural. What bipair encoding does, the one used in GPT-3, GPT-2, and a lot of different models, is it does T, followed by Rick, followed by Y, followed by Sickles. That doesn't make sense. Suboptimal. And if when you consider this, and you consider that you're doing generation at this, then imagine like I rode on a, my child rode his T, right? And you're generating the next stuff. You could say like almost Tyrannosaurus Rex. Again, it doesn't make sense. But the fact that you're putting that at the same group of things as tricycle is nonsensical. So that seems like a better way to go down the generation path. Yeah, interesting. What are some of these what are some of the other like trends and research areas that you think are underrated in not only natural language processing, but just the whole field? Mm, that's a good question. So the whole field, I was waiting for a paper like the Transformers one to come out for division. Yeah. Uh, which is once we can use transformers in vision, that'll be very useful. Ultimately, a big thing that I think people have been catching on now and my advisor really encouraged me on was that these models still aren't reasoning. They're making up stuff, but this just demonstrates a bigger thing of they're just matching patterns to data. So can you develop models that do more of reasoning and do more of almost like thinking of the bigger picture? This is largely academic work because industry will optimize for the near-term profitability. And this work may not pay off for 40 years or so. There's a, a new professor at MIT called, whose name is Jacob Andreas. And he's been doing some really interesting work along these lines. And he's argued that things you want, for instance, are compos composition ability, which is you basically want to be able to work, compose things into blocks and build these blocks up into concepts. So he's pioneered this work called neural module networks, which essentially tries to develop machines that can reason to add a module and they'd be able to build up and compose these modules together into bigger things. That makes sense. And it, I have, how do, how is something like that trained? Yeah, that's a good question. I think what they try and do is it's almost like this hierarchical manner where let's say you have a room almost. Now this room is composed of objects so you ask questions of what objects are in this room. And then in order to understand the room, it has to understand the objects. In order to understand the objects, it has to understand some like colors. So you're almost trying to build up concepts. Or for instance, what you can do is you can build a, just a computer generated picture of symbols. And you can say, is there a red shape above the circle? And now it has to understand the concept of a color and the concept of a shape rather than just learning how to generate text from a large corpus. So generally, I think this line of work tries to models learn concepts rather than have models imitate behavior. And I think this is the difference between learning and imitation that we've seen with a lot of recent NLP models. Yeah, I'll have to check that out for sure, because it strikes me as 
one of the things where we definitely need a lot more compute on, on this because you kind of are setting constraints on like what can be learned and where it should be learning things uh, in terms yep. of like you're bucketing things into a concept. And of course, concepts are fractal. So you have to have to be like splitting them and stuff like that. And it's very, it strikes me as extremely computationally difficult. So I guess that's yeah. why you said it's something for the long-term future. Exactly. And you do all this research at uh, C-Sale. Do people call it that? Yeah, people usually say C-Sale. Okay, okay, good. That, uh, I've only ever read it. I've never met someone who's actually there. So uh, good to that. Know what are the research processes like in terms of the collaboration? Is it more top-down or like how, how does that work? Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, so C-Sale is pretty collaborative overall. The way... It's interesting thinking of the research dynamics that every school and institute has. So within CSIL, we have labs. And labs are tied to a person. And the lab can change as the person's interest changes, which is pretty interesting. Versus I think at Berkeley, a lab is tied to an idea or a particular project. And these labs will last five years versus that within CSIL, the lab will last a person's lifetime because they're tied to a person. Within a lab, people are highly collaborative. You, the advisor will encourage people to work with their lab mates. And it's very easy. You can just walk up to someone and ask to join their project. Between labs, there's a lot less collaboration because I guess I have a couple of things. One is you may not be working on the same stuff. And the other is financial constraints. Maybe one lab is getting money from a certain place. Another is getting money from their competitor. And the last one is just lack of exposure. MIT has done a good job of scaling up talks recently, but you don't necessarily know what every single person in the entire school is working on. So it makes it hard to collaborate if you don't know what they're working on in the first place. These, all these are good or bad. Ultimately, I think every such system has their trade-offs. And I imagine most institutes have similar trade-offs. It's definitely, I think, a wonderful place to work. And it's a very funky place to work. I don't know if you've seen what the building looks like. But when I first saw the building, I was incredibly interested. And also, it doesn't look traditional at all, which was, I think, also meant to inspire researchers to think differently. So then are you, you have the the person at the top, if their research interests change and the direction of the lab changes, do they set a, a like grand vision of what they want the research areas to be? And then from there, people can work on whatever is kind of like leading up to that goal or how do people figure out what to work on? Mm, that's a good question. This depends lab to lab and advisor to advisor. Typically the advisor has some constraints they have to meet sometimes. For instance, funding agencies require this type of work be done. What usually happens is they define some high-level set of interests they have. So for instance, my advisor does speech and natural language processing. You're welcome to do research on either one of those or both of those. And within those, he wants to work on problems that are grounded in real-world difficulties. So for instance, machines are making things up. That's going to be a problem for a while. Let's work on that. And similarly, disinformation isn't going to go away. So let's work on that. Within this higher level or within this sub goal on this higher level goal, you're welcome to do anything that contributes to that goal. That's for my advisor in particular. Other advisors have structures such as you're welcome to do anything that interests you as long as you can find funding for it. Or if you bring your own funding, for instance, let's say you're funded by a particular, let's say you're funded by a Google fellowship or something somewhere, you can just do whatever interests you. There's a very interesting case that I thought was kind of cool is Regina Barsley's lab is right next to mine. And her lab was NLP for a while until she got diagnosed with breast cancer. And now her lab is breast cancer research and actually goes and deploys the research in local hospitals. So it's an interesting thing where she went totally just switched fields 
and now she does a different set of problems. Her students, half of her students still do NLP, half of them now do breast cancer research. But because the lab is tied to a person, they, this is a side effect of that. Um, I think there's a similar one at Stanford where there's a professor who worked on compilers and now she wants to create an open source virtual assistant. So they've switched from compilers to virtual assistants. I'm somewhat amazed that this works. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's definitely a very interesting process. I wonder if some some students definitely wouldn't love it because they signed up for something and now the lab isn't doing that thing. Um, some students would be very open to it because they're interested in whatever their advisor is interested in. But generally, advisors are very encouraging that you should pursue something that's interesting to you and something that's useful for the world. Mm-hmm. So then in your, in your own research, so if we zoom out for a second, the... Just looking at NLP, you, when you were in high school, like that was not that long ago comparatively, but the field has completely changed. It's not even close. I mean, word vectors were like just starting to come into the picture. And now yeah. it's, that's the, the very building block that everything else has been built off of. How do you keep up with the seemingly never ending stream of new research, like choosing what to read, choosing what's important, finding different ideas for your research? Yeah, that's a good question. Nowadays, it's mostly Twitter. If you follow enough researchers on Twitter, you'll get a good stream of research. I was complaining about this, I think, roughly two years ago when I was less into research. And I think it's actually a pretty... It's a problem that most researchers don't, who do full-time research don't see because they have a lot that emails out interesting papers. Some people read archive the new set of papers every day. But there's this concept called like research taste and building up whether an intuition, whether this paper is good or not. And I think that concept requires a bit of work to develop. As a side project with a few friends, we were building a recommender system for research for a while, which was you think these set of papers are interesting, we'll email you or recommend papers that are similar to those. Semantic Scholar then came out and we realized that they're doing exactly what we're doing, but they're full-time and getting paid to do it. So we ditched the project. That was unfortunate. Um, Ultimately, I think the best ways are, there's a Reddit, r slash machine learning. There is the, I guess, archive sanity, and there's Twitter. All three of those are great sources. So you build up your research taste over a long enough period of time. Do you try to read as widely as possible, or do you try and focus it on your current research interest? Yeah. So when I started, I was reading pretty widely. I remember two summers ago, I would I was working at Quizlet in um, San Francisco, and I was living about an hour and a half away. So on the Caltrain every day, I would just read a couple of papers to try and learn more about the field. Nowadays, I probably won't touch a paper unless it has something to do closer with my research interests, just because there's enough work to do. And it's also that I think I've developed a high-level idea of what most of these papers are doing, but I haven't developed a low-level specifics of looking at a particular paper and understanding whether it's novel or not. I learned this lesson quite firsthand a couple of weeks ago. I was presenting a new paper came out, that came out of Facebook, and I thought it was pretty interesting. I thought it made a lot of sense. The idea was, can you fine-tune almost without exactly fine-tuning by just augmenting the model instead? And I presented it, and my advisor goes, this isn't really a new concept. It's been around for a while. They just made some specific changes to this concept that makes it work much, much better than it used to in the past. And that made me understand that maybe while I understand the recent last six months of research reasonably well, there's research in the 90s that I just haven't even touched. And those ideas are probably worth thinking about because 
NLP has changed so much, but those core ideas of, for instance, let's say combining two models into a stronger model are still around. You just may want to do it in different ways now. That's very interesting because we've seen, to make an analogy, I don't know if it's perfect, but we've seen now startups that were started in the dot-com bubble that were just too early for their time. And now, obviously, we've talked about the rise of all this compute and need for models to take into account the continuing growth of that. How do you find those older ideas that at the time failed, so they were unlikely to get lots of citations, but now potentially they are interesting again? Yeah, that's a good question. It's So to be fair, I haven't done this yet, um, just because there's enough. I think if I do a PhD in that I would consider spending time and reading work from the 90s. Yeah. But I think what I would do is look at the most cited papers from the 90s and start by familiarizing myself with those and then think about the open questions of those and what they didn't do and then go down those paths. As far as I understand it, a lot of the work in the 90s tries to learn models through syntax and semantic parsing instead, which says the linguistic formulation of this sentence, instead of saying this is the next most likely word, it says that this sentence decomposes in this way. So let's try and train a model that learns the decomposition function. And that's how we can go next. If you think about the better lesson from Richard Sutton, then you understand that when we're doing this, we're encoding the specific decomposition. So perhaps that isn't the way to go. The modern reformulation of that is let's train the model on something that completely doesn't use him in intuition, but then let's verify that it encodes the syntax later on. And there's probably some ideas that you can take in this verification idea and reconcile it back to how we used to verify in the old days to create new ideas. Yeah, and my my first thought when you say that is potentially encoding that wanting to distill the, the syntactic or semantic tree parsing into some part of the loss function where you're trying to compute that during each epic and backpropagate, including it. And it goes back to what you said before where if there's some way to just put that in the data itself, the model might be able to just strictly reason about that. Although I don't know yeah. exactly the, how that would work. <laughs> yeah, there's another interesting idea along these same lines of if you can redo your attention mechanism to try and learn something hierarchical or like in a pre-structured fashion, then you might be able to do better on this banner. This hasn't proven out yet. I think the idea makes a lot of sense, but it, I don't understand why these papers aren't working out, but it's probably a couple of the details that they're missing. Yeah, it because having it be a tree or be a graph is encoding some sort of structure into it, but it seems like a graph really is the most general structure that you can that you can have. Yeah. I also think a graph is the most general structure you can have. I learned this by there's your Lesovic from Stanford who pioneered a lot of this stuff in graphs. And he argued that what CV is doing, NLP is doing, all of them are essentially trying to learn over graphs, but they just have a specific structure over graph. So he's saying, let's just learn the general structure. And that's what makes me think that graphs are the optimal problem. Well, hopefully that research starts to uh, bear fruit soon, because that would be extremely cool to, to explore the intricacies of the English language itself from the perspective of the model. Now, to start to wrap up a little bit, we're getting close to the to your time stop. You were involved in the MIT machine intelligence community 
Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was a really fun project with a couple of friends. So the what we when I came to MIT, I originally joined, I think clubs are fantastic communities to join in college. And I originally joined this awesome club called TechX, which ran Hack MIT, Make MIT, and a lot of the hackathons. And it was a great group of developers who are very good at like software engineering. A lot of them are doing startups now that are doing incredibly well. I did some time there and I learned a lot. And then next, I wanted to try and get more into machine learning. So I looked for like a group of people who do interesting machine learning stuff. And realized it didn't really exist. And then I realized that machine learning was taking off nowadays. So that's why it didn't exist. So a couple of friends and I decided to try and make this a thing together. We raised a fair amount of money from corporate sponsors. We realized a big impediment to undergrads doing research was a lack of them personally having GPUs. So we built up a free of charge GPU cluster for undergrads. And then we also started running some events like tutorials with free food, your classic college environment. I'm really excited we did that because now I think it's taking off. Anyone who joins MIT who's interested in machine learning immediately goes to the machine intelligence community. Now they've rebranded to AI at MIT, which is a better name, a more generic name. But I think it was ultimately pretty rewarding because we saw, for instance, the GPU cluster yielded, I think, four papers that were published by undergrads just working on their own. It wasn't even like they were working with a professor. Yeah, so that was really rewarding. We launched a labs division, which was trying to do applied product by combining it with research. So they did some pretty interesting stuff. I think one idea is a social, let's say you have a group of people, what songs recommended to them. All the current recommender systems are for one person. So let's say you log in, all four people log into Spotify, and then the model says, oh, this is what all four people would enjoy. That's Another a idea, great idea. That yeah. is a, such a good idea. I can just think about it now. Like people trying on road trips, trying to get yep. uh, their things together. You can just link your Spotify profiles or whatever, and then it'll generate like a car playlist that everyone likes. Exactly. But the environment to do something like this didn't exist before. So they're working on like really cool product ideas like this. And I think that was a problem I wanted to solve was because if you go to MIT, the only good place to do machine learning stuff is they are in these research labs and CISO. But some people want to do product and just combine it with research because that's a gap that currently exists. So this was trying to solve that gap. So specifically, what do you mean between product and research? Just thinking about shipping real AI products? Is that? Yeah. So it would be shipping things like recommend things for a group of people. Gotcha. A similar idea we had was um, use, for instance, build a product that can recommend you like upload a picture and it recommends some like styles or accessories that you can purchase. Generally try and build tools that leverage machine learning, but not necessarily innovate on the machine learning in their own right. What is the most exciting thing that you think is coming out of that group? Mm, I definitely think the social media recommender, that's what they're currently working on. I think that's a fantastic idea. There's a couple of other products, but I think that one is the most exciting. And I also think the people. The people are an incredible group of people. I Now, since I'm older, I've taken a step back from the club. But it's rewarding to see that the club is still going and still moving on. And I think they have really attracted some really high-quality people who are incredibly passionate. And I think that they, because the group of people are really kind and really thoughtful, they have a lot of ways to go. Yeah, for sure. It's really cool that you were able to continue and make it a thriving organization without you. 
I had a similar experience, but failed in this regard where I had a student, uh, like a great group of people, but was never able to put the, the systems and like leadership in place for that to thrive without me. Yeah. I learned this through my time in the hackathon club because someone introduced the concept of a bus factor, which is if you aren't there, can this club still go on? Yeah. Or in other words, how many people can get hit by a bus and this organization still be alive? Bus factor. Exactly. That's good. <laughs> yeah. So once I understood that, then I realized it's not really about myself, but it's about how much it's about the community and the almost system level of what you're building. And I tried to make people decentralized decision-making almost. So now to move on to the rapid fire questions, what do you do for fun outside of work? Oh, that's a good question. Recently, I've started going swimming a lot. I was looking for a nice workout routine that will both let me exercise, but also something I enjoy. I tried running for a while and I still go on runs every once in a while, but not, I don't find that as enjoyable for sure. For me, swimming is able to, I feel like it's a proper break. And I think it's the fact that I have to make it to the next lap or otherwise I'm dead. That really motivates me. Outside of that, reading books, I've started reading a lot about economics lately, just because I don't feel like I have a good understanding of it and various economic systems. Fun. Economics is very fun stuff if you read the right things. What book or books do you most often recommend to other people? Could be technical or non-technical. Ooh, these are good questions. Let me pull up. I guess it depends on their interests, but Shoe Dog by Phil Knight was fantastic. Yes, I can second that one for sure. Um, Hamilton, I've been reading the book that inspired the uh, musical. There's Becoming by Michelle Obama. This because it highlighted a perspective that I think was ill-told. For instance, instead of worrying about what's going to happen to the country, it was just a worry about her daughters, right? Her daughters are growing up in this environment where they're all of a sudden at the center of a lot of attention. That may or may not be a good thing. One I read in high school that was very informative was Mindset, which essentially argues that if you tackle any problem with the idea that you may be able to do it, it's a lot more than saying, oh, I'm just not going to be able to do this in the first place. And let me see if there's... Oh, I guess I also read... Oh, there's The Innovators by Walter Isaacson, which discusses the history of computing from the transistor to the modern age. And you really get a better high-level perspective than I think most people do. Yeah, that's on my reading list, actually, and I have not gotten around to it. As oh, I'm it's sure. one of my favorite books. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, yeah, the, I definitely second Mindset as well. That was a really transformative book just to realize that just like one, that one little mental shift that you can make that's totally doable to make, it's, it m- makes everything else possible, essentially, because yeah. it, it's that old quote, I forget who said it, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, and the mindset just, like, why not just choose to believe that you can? Next question is AGI, thoughts. Ooh, pretty far away. <laughs> I had this discussion with a friend. Ultimately, I think the current state of machine learning is building something that's economically going to be very useful and very viable. And that's because it's mostly driven by, it's driven by a combination of academia, which has a longer term thinking and industry, which has a shorter term thinking. And I think this is why academia has this criticism of a lot of the work coming out of industry, 
is because in 40 years, you can't really see these machines doing higher level thinking and reasoning yet. The argument coming from industry is, sure, but it's still going to be pretty useful. Generating text is going to be pretty useful no matter what. And even if the text doesn't coherently think, that's not their goal, right? Um, sure, Google and Facebook are more research-driven labs that have a longer timeline. But generally speaking, they exist within a corporation, and a corporation exists to create profit. So AGI is going to be pretty far away just because these machines aren't doing reasoning and I don't see them doing reasoning for a while. But we'll get something that's economically useful. We'll get something that I think will surprise a lot of people, hopefully in the short term. Next, what advice would you give to someone just entering the field? Ooh, it depends on their background. For me, I came with a bit more engineering and startup-based background. And the one thing I didn't understand until recently and probably still haven't understood is it's about the ideas and try and be weird and wacky with your ideas more so than anything. Don't try and publish often. Try and publish a good paper that takes longer rather than a set series of short papers. And try and be thoughtful and be very careful in your experimentation. Ultimately, a lot of these experiments are very small things that you wouldn't normally notice unless you're being very careful and deliberate. And I think you can't do this if you're trying to publish as quickly as possible and move as fast as possible. Hmm. Great answer. When you're talking with friends uh, late at night, what is something that you always like to to bring up that they never agree with? I guess my friends and I were discussing the value of immigration last night. And I think like we all agree that the U.S. immigration policy as it's changed is quite unfortunate. Maybe, I guess, one area that is hard to decide is the extent of what you want to bring in high school immigrants versus immigrants that are less skilled, but you want to give them a chance. I think that's going to be a hard one for the country to decide going forward. And I guess one in general is the balance between working on things that are immediately useful and working on things long-term that are good for the world. Um, I think everyone has some opinion on this balance. And it's just a personal question as to what your priorities and beliefs are. Yeah, it's, oh man, the more I read about it, the more I realize I have no idea what's going on on this subject. It's just so complex. Everywhere you turn, there's some other nuance of, of it. I used to be super on the side of, yeah, free borders, whatever, just let anyone in. And the more you read, you're like, yeah, it's not that simple. (laughs) Yeah, completely. I do think our current policy is a bit against bringing in high tech talent and low tech talent. So I'm still, I wish that, I hope that will change soon. Otherwise we're going to export a lot of our talent to other countries. Mm -hmm. And finally, what's next for you? You mentioned possibly doing a PhD. What's the decision factors going into that? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I've been wrestling with this decision for a while. Ultimately, I would consider doing a PhD, but I think I want some time to formulate those reasons a bit better and understand why I would be doing one or why I wouldn't. And then I think I want some time to sit back and just read more broadly before going into very detailed questions on how do you sample from a language model? Because if you don't understand the big picture, sometimes those small, you realize those small level decisions don't really matter. So I think I want some time to understand the big picture. And then lastly, I probably want some time to sit back and enjoy <laughs> life with friends yeah, before yeah. going into a lab. <laughs> Makes sense. So where can f- people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, I have a website, moinadim.com or Twitter at moinadim. Both of those work incredibly well. Anyone's also welcome to email me, emnadim at mit.edu. And I'm happy to respond to most emails. 
Awesome. Well, uh, I hope people will take advantage of that. And I will link all of those things in the show notes below. So thank you so much, Moin, for coming on to the podcast. This was a really great conversation. Anytime. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, too. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.